Chapter Twenty Three of Certain Personal Matters. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by D. J. Wood. Certain Personal Matters by H. G. Wells. Chapter Twenty Three of A Book Unwritten. Accomplished literature is all very well in its way, no doubt, but much more fascinating to the contemplative man are the books that have not been written. These latter are no trouble to hold. There are no pages to turn over. One can read them in bed on sleepless nights without a candle. Turning to another topic, primitive man in the works of the descriptive anthropologist is certainly a very entertaining and quaint person, but the man of the future if only we had the facts, would appeal to us more strongly. Yet where are the books? As Ruskin has said somewhere, apropos of Darwin, it is not what man has been, but what he will be, that should interest us. The contemplative man in his easy chair, pondering this saying, suddenly beholds in the fire, through the blue haze of his pipe, one of these great unwritten volumes. It is large in size, heavy in lettering, seemingly by one Professor Holzkopf presumably professor at Weisnick too. The necessary characters of the man of the remote future deduced from the existing stream of tendency, is the title. The worthy professor is severely scientific in his method, and deliberate and cautious in his deductions. The contemplative man discovers as he pursues his theme, and yet the conclusions are, to say the least, remarkable. We must figure the excellent professor expanding the matter at great length, voluminously technical, but the contemplative man, since he has access to the only copy, is clearly at liberty to make such extracts and abstracts as he chooses for the unscientific reader. Here, for instance, is something of the practicable lucidity that he considers admits of quotation. The theory of evolution, writes the professor, is now universally accepted by zoologists and botanists and is applied unreservedly to man. Some question, indeed, whether it fits his soul, but all agree it counts for his body. Man, we are assured, is descended from ape-like ancestors, molded by circumstances into men, and these apes again were derived from ancestral forms of a lower order, and so up the primordial protoplasmic jelly. Clearly, then, man, unless the order of the universe has come to an end, will undergo further modification in the future, and at least cease to be man, giving rise to some other type of animated being. At once the fascinating question arises, what will this being be? Let us consider for a little the plastic influences at work upon our species. Just as the bird is the creature of the wing, and it is all molded and modified to flying, and just as the fish is the creature that swims, and has had to meet the inflexible conditions of a problem in hydrodynamics, so man is the creature of the brain. He will live by intelligence and not by physical strength, if he live at all so that much that is purely animal about him is being, and must be, beyond all question, suppressed in his ultimate development. Evolution is no mechanical tendency making for perfection, according to the ideas of the current year of grace, 1897. It is simply the continual adaptation of plastic life, for good or evil, to the circumstances that surround it. We notice this decay of the animal part around us now, in the loss of teeth and hair, in the dwindling hands and feet of men, in their smaller jaws and slighter mouths and ears. 
Man now does by wit and machinery and verbal agreement what he once did by bodily toil. For once he had to catch his dinner, capture his wife, run away from his enemies, and continually exercise himself, for love of himself, to perform these duties well. But now all this is changed. Cabs, trains, trams render speed unnecessary. The pursuit of food becomes easier. His wife is no longer hunted, but rather, in view of the crowded matrimonial market, seeks him out. One needs wits now to live, and physical activity is a drug, a snare even. It seeks artificial outlets, and overflows in games. Athleticism takes up time and cripples a man in his competitive examinations and in business. So is your fleshly man handicapped against his subtler brother. He is unsuccessful in life, does not marry. The better adapted, survive. The coming man, then, will clearly have a larger brain and a slighter body than the present. But the professor makes one exception to this. The human hand, since it is the teacher and interpreter of the brain, will become constantly more powerful and subtle as the rest of the musculature dwindles. Then, in the physiology of these children of men, with their expanding brains, their great sensitive hands and diminishing bodies, great changes were necessarily worked. We see now, says the professor, in the more intellectual sections of humanity, an increasing sensitiveness to stimulants, a growing inability to grapple with such a matter as alcohol, for instance. No longer can men drink a bottle full of port. Some cannot drink tea. It is too exciting for their highly wrought nervous systems. The process will go on, and the Sir Wilfrid Lawson of some near generation may find it his duty and pleasure to make the silvery spray of his wisdom tintinobulate against the tea tray. These facts lead naturally to the comprehension of others. Fresh, raw meat was once a dish for a king. Now refined persons scarcely touch meat unless it is cunningly disguised. Again, consider the case of turnips. The raw root is now a thing almost uneatable, but once upon a time a turnip must have been a rare and fortunate find, to be torn up with delirious eagerness and devoured in ecstasy. The time will come when the change will affect all the other fruits of the earth. Even now, only the young of mankind eat apples raw the young always preserving ancestral characteristics after their disappearance in the adult. Some day, even boys will regard apples without emotion. The boy of the future, one must believe, will gaze on an apple with the same unspeculative languor with which he now regards a flint in the absence of a cat. Furthermore, fresh chemical discoveries came into action as modifying influences upon men. In the prehistoric period, even man's mouth had ceased to be an instrument for grasping food. It is still growing continually less prehensile. His front teeth are smaller, his lips thinner and less muscular. He has a new organ, a mandible not of irreparable tissue, but of bone and steel, a knife and fork. There is no reason why things should stop at partial artificial division thus afforded. There is every reason, on the contrary, to believe my statement that some cunning exterior mechanism will presently masticate and insalivate his dinner, relieve his diminishing salivary glands and teeth, and at last altogether abolish them. Then what is not needed disappears. What use is there for external ears, nose, and brow ridges now? The two latter once protected the eye from injury, in conflict, and in falls. But in these days we keep on our legs and at peace. Directing his thoughts in this way, the reader may presently conjure up a dim, strange vision of the latter-day face. Eyes large, lustrous, beautiful, soulful, 
Above them, no longer separated by rugged brow ridges, is the top of the head, a glistening, hairless dome, turret and beautiful. No craggy nose rises to disturb by its unmeaning shadows the symmetry of that calm face. No vestigial ears project. The mouth is a small, perfectly round aperture, toothless and gumless, jawless, unanimal. No futile emotions disturbing its roundness as it lies, like the harvest moon or the evening star in the wide firmament of face. Such is the face the professor beholds in the future. Of course, parallel modifications will also affect the body and limbs. Every day so many hours and so much energy are required for digestion. A gross torpidity, a carnal lethargy seizes on mortal men after dinner. This may and can be avoided. Man's knowledge of organic chemistry widens daily. Already he can supplement the gastric glands by artificial devices. Every doctor who administers physic implies that the bodily functions may be artificially superseded. We have pepsin, pancreatin, artificial gastric acid, I know not what like mixtures. Why, then, should not the stomach be ultimately superannuated altogether? A man who could not only leave his dinner to be cooked, but also leave it to be masticated and digested, would have vast social advantages over his food-digesting fellow. This is, let me remind you here, the calmest, most passionless, and scientific working out of the future forms of things from the data of the present. At this stage, the following facts may perhaps stimulate your imagination. There can be no doubt that many of the arthropods, a division of animals more ancient and even now more prevalent than the vertebrata, have undergone more phylogenetic modification, a beautiful phrase, than even the most modified of vertebrated animals. Simple forms like the lobster display a primitive structure parallel with that of the fishes. However, in such a form as the degraded chondrocanthus, the structure has diverged far more widely from its original type than in man. Among some of these most highly modified crustaceans, the whole of the alimentary canal, that is, all the food-digesting and food-absorbing parts, form a useless solid cord. The animal is nourished, it is a parasite, by the absorption of the nutritive fluid in which it swims. Is there any absolute impossibility in supposing man to be destined for a similar change? To imagine him no longer dining with unwieldy paraphernalia of servants and plates upon food queerly dyed and distorted, but nourishing himself in an elegant simplicity by immersion in a tub of nutritive fluid? There grows upon the impatient imagination a building, a dome of crystal, across the translucent surface of which flushes of the most glorious and pure prismatic colors pass and fade and change. In the center of this transparent chameleon-tinted dome is a circular white marble basin filled with some clear, mobile, amber liquid, and in this plunge and float strange beings. Are they birds? They are the descendants of man at dinner. Watch them as they hop on their hands, a method of progression advocated already by Bjornsson about the pure white marble floor. Great hands they have, enormous brains, soft, liquid, soulful eyes. Their whole muscular system, their legs, their abdomens, are shriveled to nothing, a dangling, degraded pendant to their minds. The further visions of the professor are less alluring. The animals and plants die away before men, except such as he preserves for his food or delight 
or such as maintain a precarious footing about him as commensals and parasites. These vermin and pests must succumb sooner or later to his untiring inventiveness and incessantly growing discipline. When he learns, the chemists are doubtless getting towards the secret now, to do the work of chlorophyll without the plant, then his necessity for other animals and plants upon the earth will disappear. Sooner or later, where there is no power of resistance and no necessity, there comes extinction. In the last days man will be alone on earth, and his food will be won by the chemist from the dead rocks and the sunlight. And one may learn the full reason in that explicit and painfully right book, the data of ethics, that rational fellowship of man will give place to an intellectual cooperation, and emotion fall within the scheme of reason. Undoubtedly it is a long time yet, but a long time is nothing in the face of eternity, and every man who dares think of these things must look eternity in the face. Then the earth is ever radiating away heat into space, the professor reminds us, and so at last comes a vision of earthly cherubim, hopping heads, great unemotional intelligences, and little hearts, fighting together perforce, and fiercely against the cold that grips them tighter and tighter, for the world is cooling, slowly and inevitably it grows colder as the years roll by. We must imagine these creatures, says the professor, in galleries and laboratories deep down in the bowels of the earth. The whole world will be snow-covered and piled with ice. All animals, all vegetation vanished, except this last branch of the tree of life. The last men have gone even deeper following the diminishing heat of the planet, and vast metallic shafts and ventilators make way for the air they need. So with a glimpse of these human tadpoles, in their deep close gallery with their boring machinery ringing away and artificial lights glaring and casting black shadows, the professor's horoscope concludes, Humanity in dismal retreat before the cold, changed beyond recognition. Yet the professor is reasonable enough. His facts are current science, his methods orderly. The contemplative man shivers at the prospect, starts up to poke the fire, and the whole of this remarkable book that is not written vanishes straight away in the smoke of his pipe. This is the great advantage of this unwritten literature. There is no bother in changing the books. The contemplative man consoles himself for the destiny of the species with the lost portion of Kubla Khan. End of chapter 23